Hello. 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 Can you guys hear me? Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Sound good. Well, yeah. Well, for some reason on Windows Seven, you know, when you open the volume control, the microphone is not on it anymore. It's one of those user, uh, you know, user enhancing experiences that they didn't document. Yes. Did you just upgrade to seven? Is your computer? Using no, 7? but I I was using my old desktop was XP, which is what I normally worked on. But obviously, since the XP apocalypse, I've been uh, working on my wife's laptop, which is Windows Seven. So okay. So it behaves differently. Sound is weird on Windows Seven. I have noticed setting sound levels is a little goofy with my um, USB uh, record player. It's just insane hmm. trying to track down where to get the volume to actually get a yeah. decent level in there to the point of where I'm almost thinking of scrapping the USB record player and just looking for two of them. <laughs> one for you and one for me. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I've got my notes and everything here, so I'm ready whenever you guys are. Okay. Back to the bin. See, I'm worried that I may get like Bill. I may be the Doctor Bill this time out, but you know, whatever. We, we need we need to have at least one person give a long-winded, broken-up, rambling synopsis, and it might as well be me this time. Why not? I could try. I could try for Ed one too. We'll, we'll <laughs> Fine. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so Sean, you want to bring us in? You want me to bring us in? Yeah. Go ahead, and you can bring us in. You know. <clears throat> All right. Let me get a drink and get started here. La 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 la. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. If you're expecting to hear the dulcet tones of superlative Scott Gardner producer Paul Pas- Paul Spataro or Doctor Bill Robinson, I'll you're out of luck. <laughs> Because well, I could I could try and do my my really shitty doctor or not Doctor Bill, but uh, producer Paul impersonation. But I don't want to I don't want to offend him because you know he has mafia ties. <laughs> That's true. Shh. So in case you haven't caught on, it's Assistant Editors Month here at Two True Freaks, which means that the inmates are running the asylum, and by that I mean different inmates than normal are running the asylum. So <laughs> I am Luke Giaconetti, and I am joined this evening on Back to the Bins my my two two of my cohorts from the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. First, Mr. Sean Engel. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. It's going to be d- something. <laughs> <laughs> And joining us as well, uh, someone who probably should know better, uh, Mr. Chris Honeywell. Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoy our diverse selection of comic books. <laughs> hey, if you didn't know this, th- think about what kind of comic book do you think that Chris is going to bring to the show? Do you think it's going to be a DC or Marvel? Hmm? Hmm? No, it's not. It's an indie. Was that your daughter that answered that question? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> she she knows Chris so well that she knows that he can't possibly read a, a regular comic book. 
Yeah, see, Chris is going to bring the indie watch and be like Magnus Robot Fighter from Gold Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, so we got a heck of a show here tonight. So, anyone have any any interesting comic book related news they want to discuss? Oh, I haven't been to the comic book store in a while. I need to go. I need to go because I need to. I, I think the. I know All Star Western is one of the few of the new DC Fifty Two titles that I pick up, and I know it's coming to an end. So I want to try and pick up the last one of those, the last couple of those. But other than that, I haven't had really any comic book stuff. You know, I've been doing a lot of podcasting recently uh, with Assistant Editors Month. You know, everyone is basically given Scott and Chris the week off or the month off, which is kind of cool, except for Chris coming oh, in and doing this. But Chris is not normally on this show, though. That's true. No, so that's he's true. he's. He's getting to swap out, but you know it's it's been a fun month. I'm looking forward to all the other shows, and I'm I'm really excited that Paul's letting us take over back to the men's to do to do our own little comic talk here. It'll be kind of fun. How about you, Chris? Anything comic-y related going on? Well, uh, not I, I mean the last like new comic I bought was the the latest double size um, Walking Dead. Where it takes a little two-year jump in in the time frame, mm-hmm. and which we we sort of discussed on Walking Dead Wednesday, but I've been going to garage sales and all the comic books I've been seeing have been really overpriced and not anything. You know, it just I I think we saw some. Be- it was I think they were old Fantastic Fours. I mean Kirby drawn, but you know forty dollars and stuff like Jesus. that. Yeah, you know, right, exactly. If you and, really want forty bucks for it, put it on eBay. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't know that particular issue. Maybe it was worth three or four times that, and forty dollars would have been great. I don't know. You know, I, that's not what I go to garage sales for. I mean, the most I've been picking up comic-y at garage sales is I've been getting the little paperback collections of charlie browns and i've been finding a lot of bc lately uh comics i i picked up a really weird one called uh dennis menace babysitter guide which is actually a babysitter guide mm. uh, but it's written as if it was written by dennis Wait, so isn't it isn't it how to like terrorize your babysitter then if it's written by dennis i was gonna say it's like from a kid's <laughs> point of view so it's like what he wants a good babysitter to be, which the what he says is definitely not what Dennis Mitchell would say <laughs> as a kid. You know, it would be I want ice cream and they're going to like let me go out and play with my friends and all all that sort of stuff, stay up late and stuff like that. But it's probably the child psychologists were involved at some point in the writing of it. But it's you know it's written and it's it's basically uh, for written for like a ten year old girl to uh, you know learn the basics of babysitting with humorous Dennis Semenis quips and cartoons <laughs> thrown throughout. Yeah, because the person you look up to whenever you think of you know properly babysitting a child is Dennis the Menace. Well, then yeah. again, that's also sort of a trial by fire, too. Like, <laughs> get, if you can get your kid to do Dennis the Menace and yep. they're ready for whatever. <laughs> exactly, yeah. If you can if you can handle Dennis the Menace, then, yeah, you can handle your average child pretty right. easily. Right, it's like boot camp, really. <laughs> <laughs> all, I can, all I can think of is Carrie the Babysitter from The Incredibles. 
I don't know right, about right. this, Mrs. Parr. There's some weird stuff going on here. <laughs> and that reading studies say Mozart makes babies smarter. So we're going to listen to Mozart and make babies smarter. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I might as well tell you that. I was just watching on TV and saw The Incredibles on. And I every time that's on, that's, that's a, one of those movies I just have to sit and watch because it's just so excellent. So it's funny you mention that because I love that movie. That's yeah, it's it, it's I was thinking I actually was I was talking about Brad Bird with uh, Scott 2.0 next door and uh, and I was starting to think about the Incredibles and I'm thinking I'm putting it up in that like Raiders of the Lost Ark Jaws Star Wars category of perfect movies for me that might be one of the like more recent movies that are just like you really wouldn't want to change anything about it everything is just about perfect about it oh yeah yeah brad bird has that ability to to just do movies really well i mean i don't think he's had really a bad movie from his animated stuff with iron giant and the incredibles and ratatouille even to his uh his live action stuff that uh last tom cruise mission impossible movie the ghost protocol one that was brad bird too and that was one of the better mission impossible movies in my opinion see i watched the first mission impossible and then i was done with it the the whole franchise at that point it was uh it wasn't a bad movie but i didn't think it was a good movie either yeah did you did you get to see that uh fourth the tom cruise mission impossible movie uh, no, after uh, after the first two, I had to basically be my arm put into a hammerlock to watch the third one, and I will oh, watch God. the fourth one. The only, I mean, the only reason I ended up at the second one was uh, I ended up going. My dad wanted to see it, so I went with my parents, and I was just sitting there watching, like, yeah, this this really sucks. See, I thought the 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 fourth one was actually really good. You know, I'm I'm not a Tom Cruise fan, but I I think his movies are eminently watchable. Have any of you guys heard about the the new one he did, the, I've heard the it's Edge really of Tomorrow. Good. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think it's just that sort of Tom Cruise stigma that he has around him. That you know, people, his movies generally have been pretty good. I've heard good things about the Jack Reacher movie. So it's it's, it's all based on his personality and weird Scientology stuff and his just general weirdness and in interviews and but whatever. I don't care about that. I just care about what and I always and. I don't. I shouldn't say I always enjoy his movies, but he's made a lot of movies that I thought were really good mm-hmm. on either just a pure entertainment level where he was a cartoony action hero, or where he was actually acting. There's, I mean, he's a really good actor. I mean, I remember seeing um, Risky Business mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and being like, "Wow, this is a really good movie," and he did a really good job in well, that. And it was like that what that Paul Thomas Anderson movie that he did where he was the sort of motivational speech. What, Vanilla Sky? No, no, no. It was, uh, he was, he was, was a motivational it? speaker. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. Are we sure that, are we sure that wasn't like, Vanilla Sky? No, no, Vanilla Sky was by the same director as, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, I'm yeah. going with Vanilla Sky. I'm just okay. going to stick with that. <laughs> no, it was, the one with him as a preacher was like a four hour, it was like his four-hour follow-up to um, what was it? Um, Boogie Nights. Yeah. And uh, not that it was related to Boogie Nights, but it was his next movie. Mm-hmm. And I never saw it, but it had like 
like three or four storylines that sort of intersected and i know there was a rain of frogs oh yeah magnolia magnolia yes i was hoping rain of frogs would trigger something in someone magnolia vanilla sky all the same yeah (laughs) (laughs) but comic books well i i actually do have some comic news because as we're recording this this past weekend was heroes con in charlotte north carolina which is uh Kind of my big con that I go to. A lot of my friends are big into Dragon Con, which is in Atlanta, but that is held on Labor Day weekend, and I am always uh, traveling on Labor Day weekend, so I never, I've never been, and will most likely never be able to attend Dragon Con. So Heroes Con is my big one, and uh, I like it because it's pretty much straight comics, uh, very family-friendly atmosphere. Got a whole lot of capitalism going down for me, which I always like, warms the cockles of my shriveled, dead, conservative heart. <laughs> and uh, I, I met up with uh, with an artist that I met a couple of years ago. His name's Joey Weiser. And uh, this will be in the next Earth Destruction Directive of, as well. But his website is www.tragic-planet.com. And uh, I came to know his work because he did a webcomic called Monster Isle, which was a Daikaiju webcomic. And I love his style. It's very cartoony. I picked up some original art from him. And one of his, uh, he did a kaiju alphabet book with A is for Angurus, B is for Balton, and so on down the line through Z. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. I, I got to meet Jim Starlin, which was a lot of fun. I brought him my Hawkman special because I wanted to be the only person ever to bring him that book to sign. Did you ask him why his heads were so small? <laughs> <laughs> I did not, but he did tell me that when he drew Hawkman, he thought he was the absolute hardest character ever to draw. Really? Un- until he had to draw Annihilus. And now, now he's of the opinion that Annihilus is the hardest character he's ever had to draw, to the point that he said he redesigned him to make him easier to draw. <laughs> Maybe he just makes the head smaller so he has to draw less. <laughs> Doesn't draw the heads all that small. But uh, but that was my big thing, so I got a stack of things. Well, actually, one of the oddball things, you guys will probably appreciate this, I found some issues of uh, Marvel Classic Comics, which was when Marvel was doing their Classics Illustrated-style books in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And they were all like 52 pages with no ads. Well, I found some of those. I found uh, The Invisible Man, and I found, um, what was it? Uh, Oh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And then two that I hadn't heard of before, which were The Iliad and The Odyssey. Now, the thing that was odd to me is that I'm looking at them, and The Odyssey is issue number 18, right? Okay, The Il- take a guess what, the, not, what issue number the Iliad is. 22. 26. Wow. It's like, I said, didn't the Iliad come first? <laughs> I guess not in Marvel World. Well, yeah. yeah you're, looking at a, you're looking at a company that will publish pretty much anything. They'll, pump, they'll publish a comic about the Pope, okay? So, well, the, what, I, what I figured it was is they did the Odyssey. And uh, I think this I think this was when uh, I'm not sure who the editor in chief was at this point. It might have been Roy Thomas or something. They were all like, you know, kind of like, hey, we did a great job in that Odyssey book. It's like, oh, shit, we forgot to do the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs> I can only assume that Virgil's the Aeneid is like issue number 12 or something like that. That wouldn't so. be surprising. I, I did leave one behind. I found Ivanhoe. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to really read Ivanhoe. Oh. Even in comic. I think Ivanhoe's the only one of those that I have. <laughs> Seriously, I believe I have the Ivanhoe one now that you mention it, and I think that's, that's cool. the only one I have. Wow! And I've never read it, and I probably never will. Maybe I will now, just on. Yeah. Prince- See, if it had been like Jack Kirby's Ivanhoe, yeah. <laughs> I'd have read that, but but I'm Jack getting Jack Kirby would have drawn the hell out of Ivanhoe. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but oh, so I'm, you know, because Paul's not here to direct us or to produce us. I don't know who goes first. Is it <laughs> well, DC first or Marvel first? I think Marvel typically goes first. So who's got our Marvel? Well, I've got our Marvel here. I'll go ahead and start with it uh, if you guys are ready. Well, um, I have got an issue, and I hope this. I'm going to assume this isn't going to be treading on Andy and Steven over at the Fantastic Ass because they probably won't get for the get to this for like another three or four years. But I picked uh, Fantastic Four number 166. Uh, this bad boy had a cover date of January 1996 and was released on October 28th of 1975. It was cover priced just 25 cents. Oh, times have changed. The title, and I think this is one of the reasons why I, I love this book. The title of the story is, If It's Tuesday, This Must Be the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just... I've lived by that my entire life. (laughs) I just love the idea that, oh, it's another Hulk attack. Oh, uh, what is it? Uh, Oh, Tuesday. Yeah, right on time. Um, The writer-editor of this one was Roy Thomas. The penciler was George Perez. Yay! The inker was Vince Galetta. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The letterer was Joseph Rosen. The colorist was Phil Rach. And the cover was by Rich Buckler. Yay! And Dad Atkins. So so I, I loved his diet. Never just no one ever has any particularly strong opinions on Joe Rosen as a letterer. Uh, he does a good enough job. <laughs> I know. I, I think we're all just upset about you know Vince Coletta being there. Anyhow, the biggest, the biggest debate I've ha- had on him with Scott was whether it was Rosen or Rosen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we need to put that restrike Rosen. Um, the story starts out with the Fantastic Four flying on a luxury 747 and the Fantastic Four sitting in the lounge section with them. Unfortunately, there's a couple making out in the lounge section, which kind of P.O.'s uh, Ben Grimm. He threatens to kick the butt of the two uh, or of the guy who's trying to make out with his wife, girlfriend, prostitute. I'm not certain. But they take off after Ben threatens them and the woman you know, calls him a cad. Ben's feeling kind of down because, well, he missed out on having a date with Alicia, but his spirits are picked up because the stewardess brings by a cake or a plate of delicious, delicious hostess fruit pies. Well, not hostess fruit pies, but they're a delicious, delicious cake. Ben thinks that the uh, stewardess might have a desire to pucker up and kiss a superstar like himself until he finds out that the stewardess is actually a steward, and he'd still probably want to have a kiss on the lips and other places with Ben Grimm. But not after, not until after dinner. Nah, not until after Maybe. dinner. <clears throat> Johnny's feeling a little down too because, well, his girlfriend thinks he's a giant freak because he can burst into flames. Uh, Sue basically says, you know, for both boys to calm down and Reed says the same as he's got something important to tell to the team. You see, he's uh, miniaturized the Psy Amplifier. And by miniaturized, I mean basically got it down from, oh, Buick size to what you can carry in a uh, suitcase. The Psy Amplifier is a device that'll allow Reed Richards to basically suck the brain out of the Hulk and turn him back into Bruce Banner. Ben is none too thrilled about this, but, you know, he wonders why they're going out to the middle of Nebraska to get this done. Just so happens, in the middle of Nebraska, the Hulk has been jumping around, and as they're flying over the middle of Nebraska, who should happen to run into the plane, but the Incredible Hulk. Smashing the wing off the plane, like a, a gnat hitting the Hulk's skin, the plane starts to go into a tailspin. Luckily, of course, the Fantastic Four are 
maybe I should just say the Fantastic Three are there to rescue the plane as Reed jumps into action. Reed tells Sue to get ready and Johnny flames on his hand and opens uh, opens a hole in the door. Reed and Johnny uh, fly out with Reed stretching around to catch on to the back of the plane while Sue plugs open, plugs the uh, hole in the plane shut with her mental telepathy force field type stuff. Ben, unfortunately, is just getting knocked around in the plane and is not really able to do much except be a cheerleader for Sue. Basically, Reed wraps himself around the tail of the plane and turns himself into a giant parachute, slowing the descent of the plane, while Johnny welds together the wing and uses his jet power to pilot the plane down to the ground, while also throwing a couple of fireballs in the middle of the road to distract some dirty, dirty hippies off out of the way of the road. Luckily, the Fantastic Four lands the plane safely, and everyone gets out of the plane pretty much without incident. Of course, immediately after landing and Ben moping around because he really couldn't do anything, the Fantastic Four are picked up by an implausible helicopter that whisks them off to a underground military base where General Not Gen- General Not Thunderbolt Ross tells them about you know the Incredible Hulk being on a rampage and what Reed's going to do with him. The thing still is kind of mopey because he doesn't want to see anything, any harm done to the thing, or any harm done to the Hulk, but, you know, whatever, they've got to take him down. Eventually, they find the Hulk because he's emitting gamma radiation, and the Hulk, who just wants to be left alone, decides to throw a tree at the helicopter carrying the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four's helicopter gets hit by the tree thrown by the Hulk, and the crew fly out of the, jump out of the plane with Reed bailing Sue to the ground in another parachute, while Sue creates a telepathy flagpole for Ben to slide down. That's kind of odd. Johnny goes after the Hulk and uh, with a flame blast, but uh, that has fan fiction potential yeah. all over it. <laughs> just, just think about visible pole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe Ben's in her '90s malice costume. Sli- oh, sliding down that pole. Um. Johnny attacks the Hulk, and the Hulk smashes Johnny and destroys him, which is awesome, but unfortunately it's just a flame construct, and Johnny was sneaking up from behind. That's also kind of disgusting as well. Uh, Reed wraps the Hulk in his stretchy arms, and Sue puts a force field over his head to cut off the flow of oxygen to to his brain. While the two are trying to wrangle the Hulk, Reed tells Ben to go and punch him. Yeah, that's what that's what Ben's purpose in this thing. He's, he's the punching guy. Kind of disappointed with his, uh, you know, with his role in the Fantastic Four, Ben goes and punches out the Hulk and knocks him out. Not feeling very good about it. With the Hulk unconscious, they take him to the weird sex machine thing, and they hook him up, uh, all spread eagle and everything. That's often how I'm described as the weird sex machine thing. again. <laughs> And Reed hooks up his Psy amplifier, which is obviously miniaturized. I swear, it's really small. It's like iPad small. No, it's not. It's still huge. He sucks the brain, or sucks the brain juices out of uh, the Hulk, which basically turns the Hulk back into David Banner, which is awesome, except for Colonel, not General Ross, says, no, we've still got to take care of this guy. He could probably be a danger. Well, Ben's kind of PO'd about this because, you know, it's, he's just a wimpy little scientist. He poses no problem. But uh, General Not 
Colonel Ross, or whatever his name is, says, go stuff it, Ben, and we're going to put him back in the sex machine thing. Well, Ben says, you guys are dickweeds. Stuff it. I'm going after him. Ben smashes the sex wheel, and, of course, because of that, Bruce Banner hulks out again. And on the final panel we see, standing side by side, ready to take anyone on, the Incredible Hulk and the Thing, standing side by side. And I said that before. Maybe I should have written down a synopsis. This was kind of rambling. Well, it does have a lot of ads, and every time you had to go turn the page for the ads, I wanted to just start out yelling, Fly, model rockets, wear Bruce Lee. <laughs> Have your poem set to music, x-ray specs, cartoons for dollars, comic list, free book. See, see, the one thing that I, I, I want to do is we've got, uh, we've got a hostess ad in here. And if we have an opportunity, I'd like to reenact it. You know, that's, that, that's just me. Maybe we can work that out. But, you know, I, I, the one thing that I love about this issue, going back to it, is the ending. This is the way comic books should end to get you to want to read the next one. You've got that. You've got this beautiful George Perez drawing, and you know people bitch and moan about Vince Coletta. I think Coletta does a workmanlike job here. Both the Thing and the Hulk here on this last panel on this last page look awesome, and just the idea of these two powerhouse titans ready oh, that, to take that on that anyone. Pictures t-shirt worthy. Oh yeah. In fact, I'm pretty certain this probably was on some t-shirts in the 70s. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't uh be surprised if Marvel didn't, you know, publish this on their little t-shirt line, but right. yeah. So what do you guys think about this one? Well, you know, this immediately reminded me of this story is uh I had this dog named Hondo and I had Hondo for 3 years and that dog had not taken a shit in the entire 3 years, so I took him to the vet. Turns out, dog had, like, these gigantic pinworms. Mm. Well, turns out, those pinworms all had kidney stones. Oh, yeah, that that clearly makes me think of this story. That's that's all I got out of this. (laughs) No, this story, like, took me back to being, like, a little kid when I would, when I didn't really read comics, but I would get one from an older kid or something. And it would just be a random issue, so I never got whole storylines. Mm-hmm. And this was just this was just that kind of com- it's written in that language of the time period where everybody's speaking flowery Stanley language. Yeah, it's uh, kind of politically incorrect. Yeah, even though that uh, Stan and Jack are off the book and have been for uh, quite a while, at least fifty issues. There's still the influence of them. A lot yeah. of the style looks a lot George Perez kind of apes Kirby style. The uh, language is very Stanley, very uh, flowery. Yeah, well, that that's not super surprising considering it's Roy Thomas on the on the writer. That's true. And editor. So I mean, Thomas was often accused of trying to sound a lot like Stanley for good or for ill. Uh, Perez's art is is fantastic through this, and even Coletta's inks look real nice. I'm looking at the the first page here when they're in the lounge. And I love Ben's striped shirt, mm-hmm. you know, just and and just the the way that the lines are inked in on there, the pinstripes on his shirt just looks really good. And uh, there's some a, a questionable fashion choice here from the Human Torch wearing a, a a lime green turtleneck and then a green V-neck sweater over that and blue jeans. 
Yeah. That's what both of them, that's both of their dressed up on a date look. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's got kind of the Heston thing going. If he was wearing a sport coat instead of the V-neck, you'd have the Heston. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Johnny's looking pretty buff. You know, I usually think of Johnny as sort of the, the skinny, you know, sidekick kid. You know, he's, uh, in these panels, he's looking... Like a you know, linebacker. Like he's work- yeah, he's look- looking like he's been working out. Well, you know, this this was after he went to college and all that, I guess, and played football for a yeah. bit wide wingfoot, right? Yeah, he's been yeah he's been hanging out with Wyatt, and they've probably been working out. Thanks, Fantastic Cast. <laughs> See, the, although this the scene with this plane going down and them saving it, you know, with a with a little bit of tweaking and updating would be the just the kind of thing I would want to see in a fat. Fantastic Four movie. It's really funny how many superhero movies you could really get the flavor of superheroes by having some sort of trouble with with an airliner. Oh yeah, it's like Superman Returns. Best part of that movie was was the airliner going down. Was it Iron Man two or three? It was Iron Man, Iron 3, Man three, wasn't it? The, where, yeah, where it had and, out of the plane. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that scene was especially superhero-y. And the, this whole sequence here reminds me of that. This would have been a great, you know, illustration of their powers, and then a little bit of character moment for the 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 thing. We could almost do this as like a like a, the the pre-credit sequence, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, yes. that'd be perfect. Yeah, if they could Seven. do something like this, you know, the Fantastic Four just traveling from somewhere you know because it, it would be even better if it was just a random thing where the hulk knocked the wing off and you never saw him again through the whole movie yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that'd be perfect ping. you know it's unfortunately shoulder because and the, that's that <laughs> unfortunately because of the whole deal between the ownership companies yeah. of like fox and marvel that couldn't happen but yeah if, if it were to happen that would be that would be awesome to see some sort of pre-credit sequence with the Fantastic Four on a jet just having to save it in this kind of manner because yeah this is another one of the things I remember specifically from this comic that was just a fantastic action sequence no pun intended oh yeah I mean what what I'm real impressed with this book is this is a standard you know 22 page comic you know 32 with ads or (laughs) 34 with that yeah 32 with ads and you've got you know really uh, two full action sequences with them saving the plane and them them fighting the Hulk, you get two really you know kind of detailed in-depth character bits here because you get them talking at the beginning and then you get all the stuff back at the lab with the uh, the machine that would get recycled when they string people up in the Inferno storyline over an X Men, <laughs> or if you prefer that Syndrome used on his island on Mister Incredible. Oh, very very true. Going. going back to the Incredibles. Um, so, but, and it's all in here in, in the standard length comic, you get a lot of story for your 25 cents here, you know, oh, and yeah. you get some really, I mean, just some great, uh, Perez art. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't usually think about Perez drawing the fantastic four of the Hulk. So it's kind of a treat to see that. I mean, his Hulk doesn't look as, um, you know, in, in this era, I always think of, uh, Herb Trimpey for the Hulk, you know, right, right. Whereas this seems it's 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 a little it's a little more staid than Trimpey's Hulk, but he still looks really monstrous and powerful, and he's got the 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 mane of hair on top too. He just really looks he looks good, and his his Ben Grimm is fantastic. That's the part that looks most Kirby esque to me is his uh, his ever loving blue eyed thing. Yeah, and the thing really gets a chance, you know, despite the fact that he's you know made of orange rocks, he gets some really great emotive scenes in here. I'm looking at the page where. Uh, Reed's rescuing Sue from the plane, you know, pulling her down with his stretchy arms. And that next panel, you get just this sort of dejected Ben Grimm because, you know, 
he's been sidelined. All he's been able to do mm-hmm. is be a, a cheerleader. I mean, th- and Reed in his own in his own thing says, "Look, you know, you've rescued us. You've done things that are amazing. You know, hundreds of times. Don't let it get you down." So I, you know, I don't know whether this is part of the story arc where Ben's been feeling kind of down because he hasn't felt very helpful, but it, you know, it makes you wonder why he's decided to side with the Hulk. You know, what's been going on through the past couple issues that made, you know, the ending of this story happen. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure not too far down the line after this is when Ben loses his power or something and gets replaced by Luke Cage for a storyline. Yeah. I think, I think that does. That's, that that's in the one seventies, I think. So it's, it's not too far after this. Yeah. That, that does, you know, because a lot of these comics and the reason I picked this comic, because this is one of the ones that I used to, you know, when I'd go over to my grandparents' house, I had a cousin who was a huge comic collector at the time, and he had tons of comics like this just lying around. And this is one of the ones that I'd always pick up and read at the time. And uh, I specifically remember this mostly for the ending. Yeah. Because I was just like, holy crap, the Thing and the Hulk are teamed up. No one is going to be able to stop them. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, are we boned? Yep, we're boned. Pretty boned. <laughs> So do we have anything else on this or, you know, because do, do we want to go ahead and give it a letter grade or? Well, I, I do want to, like I said, I, I, I just I just really enjoyed it. I do want to point out that apparently everybody's uh, civilian clothes by this point are all made of unstable molecules <laughs> uh, because yeah. we see Reed stretch out to be a parachute and then uh, Johnny set himself on fire in his, uh, you know, turtleneck V-neck combination. Well, I was going to say if that turtleneck V-neck is anything like else in the, anything else in the seventies, it's poly polyester, and I'm surprised it wouldn't have just caught on fire anyway. <laughs> Turned to napalm. Yeah, yes. pretty much. Yeah, I, I, I do. We get some great uh, questionable fashions on page seven when the plane starts having the turbulence. Uh, right in that middle panel, there you see the uh, the guy wearing the olive green shirt and the bright green pants. Uh, that's Professor Xavier there in the second row in the blue shirt, the bald guy. <laughs> oh, dear God. That... <laughs> See, I mean, look at him. That's every, Chuck Xavier uh, right there. <laughs> everyone travels, you know, on 747s. They're the big They're the big thing now. And then uh, I love just the pair of legs sticking up. Again, that's a little suspect. <laughs> What's going on over there? Wow. <laughs> like, hey, hey keep got, it on the road up there, will you? <laughs> he's got like he's got like ragtime piano player pants on, too. <laughs> It's, it's a very motley crew that's uh, flying on this uh, this airline. See, I don't see. Surprising, I don't see anyone smoking. I mean, this is the seventies. I would think yeah. you know, the the uh, entire cabin would be filled with cigarette smoke, or or at least Ben would be smoking. That's know? yeah, having a cigar. Yeah, that's true. And um, the uh, I, I, in the panel above that, the first panel, we get to see someone obviously Perez, very interested in footwear for the loving depiction of. Uh, Sue's pumps there, <laughs> you know, and even though she's not standing on, they're still shaping her calves and lifting her tush. So I thought oh, that was wow. a nice touch. Well, I, <laughs> I don't have a problem with, uh, with Sue's tush. I'm not complaining all. about Sue's tush, <laughs> but yeah, this was just a, and this was just a fun issue. I mean, yeah, having George Perez draw this and I don't think, uh, you know, it says that he was the guest artist on this one. So I knew he had a, a good stint of on the Fantastic Four, but I don't know if, you know, he was it, it was about time for him to leave or whether someone was taking over for him. But, you know, thank goodness we got him on this issue because, yeah, it's the artwork is just great. I, I think the team around around this time was Buckler and Sinnott, wasn't it? Rich yeah, Buckler I think and Joe so. Sinnott. 
So yeah, this would have just been a guest spot. I know Buckler did the uh, the cover. So yeah, and you know there's really you know Buckler's artwork is pretty similar to George Perez's. You know there's there's a little bit of difference, but they're both you know incredible artists in their own right, and I I really like the way they depict the team. Oh yeah, that everything. Yeah, that, this is a like I said, despite the fact that it's not Jack Kirby, everybody looks really classic here. You know, mm-hmm. even right down to Sue's haircut and when she's in her uniform and stuff. You know, and yeah. the way Reed is stretching is depicted. So I, I, yeah, I was really this. This was a real treat to read this. So I'm glad you picked this one out because yeah. this, you know, I've never read uh, FF very much even growing up. You know. Um, uh, Marvel stuff I read a lot to my. You know, I read the Silver Surfer was the first Marvel comic. I read, you know, for serious, the uh, volume two of the Silver Surfer. So the FF pop up a little bit in that, but I didn't, you know, start becoming real familiar with Fantastic Four until I was older, other than out, you know, seeing the cartoon and stuff as a kid. So mm-hmm. anytime I find issues like this, it's, 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 like I said, it, it's a little bit of a, a treat for me just because it's, it's all new to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's got that Kirby feel. You know, they're still, not really aping Kirby, but they're trying to homage him and it, 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 but it's updated for the time it's, it's come out of the sixties and it's in the seventies. You can see it in the design of the clothing. Yeah. I was surprised that there was mild swearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ben says something about, you know, the hell with this. Well, like hell Hell. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, I'm wondering how much that got him in trouble with the comics code because this is code approved book. So, I have a feeling that there might have been at some point a bunch, a bit of rubber stamping going on. I uh, wouldn't be surprising. The comic code, because it would be such a pain to read every single comic book. Yeah, but also by '75, we had seen the relaxing of the code a yeah. little bit. You know that the the one that was the the classic. Uh, revision to the code that allowed for more monsters and vampires and zombies and stuff so there was the, some gay humor in this too you know yeah it, it's pretty subtle though the guy yeah could be, i wouldn't have got guy, it as a kid yeah but. same here but nowadays you look at it and you know him him you know the way he looks and the way he talks you can hear the sort of lilting in his voice <laughs> Well, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You, you can know, you can hear a, a a Jim J. Bullock playing this character. Exactly. You know, there's there's some sassiness going on when he's talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that panel has a real great uh, reaction from the the thing as well, mm-hmm. with the big upside down D mouth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, for Christ's sake, a male stew. What's the world coming to, anyhow? Yeah, and I love the panel before it, you know, where he's trying to make kissy faces because he thinks it's a, you know, yeah. you're all, you're thinking at the time, it's hot, you know, stewardess action here that he's going to be getting, and it's a guy, but yeah. it's it's fun. And uh, I, I did like also, we don't get a, it's clobbering time in here. In mm-hmm. fact, they make a specific point that Ben doesn't yell that when he punches the Hulk. But we do get my personal favorite type of uh, thing quote on page 10. What a revolting development this is. <laughs> really, mine is what, what in the name of Aunt Petunia? Name of Aunt Petunia. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's just, it's amazing. I find, I find myself saying what a revolting development pretty much on a daily basis at work. So. <laughs> I had a friend who always, he just loved saying for the lover, and then he <laughs> would add Myrtle or Edna. Uh, for the love of Myrtle, what do you do? You know, some old un- 
you know, some old lady named, oh, for the love of Agnes, what <laughs> the hell were you thinking? I, my one I use for that, I say, what, and I say, you know, oh, for the love of Hushut, the chaos god of industry. So all you uh, Warhammer wow. fans and players will know that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's picking a, that's picking an obscure one. <laughs> but uh, if you don't have anything else, do we want to give this like a letter grade? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and go first. Um, for story-wise, I've got to give it, I've got to give it a B plus. I mean, I've read better stories. There, are, you know, it does what it needs to. do. There's not much development of the character, uh, but you know, overall, it's an enjoyable story to read and listen to. Again, art-wise, George Perez, I've got to give it an A. Uh, cover by Buckler, I'll give that an A too. Especially, you know, just the. the you know, especially the cover copy on the cover, you know, him saying, you know, the, the, the Hulk smashed up our plane. What are we going to do? And, you know, said that's the Hulk. He smashed our ship and the thing going, yeah, well, wait till you see what I do to him. And as he just flies toward him, right near punch, it's just awesome. So overall, I think, I think a, an A minus for this, this comic. Hmm. Uh, me, the story, I gave it a, an A minus. I'm I'm not the most savage critic in the world. I think anyone who who listens to my show knows that. Um, you know, uh, but for for a comic from the mid '70s, this is exactly what I wanted. I want to pick. The story has it. It meets my criteria. It's a story that has a beginning, middle, and end, but it has it gives us enough of what's going on previously, so we're not feeling lost, and it has an ending that makes us want to pick up the next issue. Yep. So to me, especially some Roy Thomas was great at this. I've let a, I've, excuse me, I have read a lot of Thomas's work on Avengers, and his Avengers stories tend to follow this type of pattern where they're very well, they're constructed in a, you know, beginning, middle, end, but they have a cliffhanger of some kind to say, okay, I definitely want to pick up this next issue and see what happens from here. And the Bronze Age type of comics, I think, were really good, especially at Marvel. You know, Iron Man did this a lot. Uh, Power Man did this a lot from this era. The, these are the books I tend to like. Uh, from an, an art standpoint, I got to give it an A as well. I mean, uh, again, George Perez just makes everybody look fantastic without, you know, uh, just going completely Kirby style or something like that. I love the, all the different uh, reaction shots that. Uh, ben Grimm gets, you know, uh, the team looks great in their civvies as they do in their uniforms. Hulk looks great. And then, the, you know, that, that last, that final page, that final splash, like you said, that's, that's poster worthy right there, you know. That needs to be posterized, so mm-hmm. to speak. Oh, yeah. Uh, cover, but I thought was you know, great. I, I, uh, some copy, but not a ton. And I like that it's, we're not in the period where the covers are in the little box. Like mm-hmm. Marvel did in the mid '70s, when they put everything in the little box, so you lost out in some cover space. Um, I'm not a huge right. fan of this Fantastic Four logo, but uh, it it always seems a little plain to me. Yeah, it really I doesn't up, you jump know, out I, at you. Yeah, but th- you know, but but it's still good, and I always love the the the, the Marvel Comics Group banner. For some reason, I have an unhealthy uh, appreciation of that. So, I got to give this overall an A. I thought this was a great issue. And, and showed the strength of telling, you know, stories that are self-contained but part of the larger canvas. And I thought this was a great example of a, a Bronze Age Fantastic Four book. And I'm definitely looking to get some more of this because this is just good stuff. Hmm. I would give it all across the board on everything an A because of its just classicness. As, you know, I can't do it in the – like, 
I mean, I would probably be much harsher on the writing and stuff for this if it was modern or whatever, but it's more taking me back to being eight years old, you know, seven or eight years old. So as as that, it's almost like a perfect example of, you know, a, a great Marvel comic from that time. Now, the art could have gotten... The art's the only thing that could have brought it up into an A plus if and I think it's the inks. Not that Coletta did a bad job at the inks, which is possible, but it's just like he was he's probably not the ideal inker for George Perez. You know, there's you know, a different inker can make a good inker can make really good Perez art into really beautiful, awesome art. And, yep. But you can totally see the Perez style, and he did not subvert his style or subvert the art at any. He just angularized it a little, which gives it that Kirby look. But that's the only thing keeping the art from an A+. plus. So mm-hmm. it's a solid A all around. Good. Cool. I'm glad you guys enjoyed this. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, uh, the next one up is, uh, is yours, Luke. You've got the TC this time out. Oh, right. That I do, and... Uh, my book that I have brought today is First Issue Special Number One, introducing Atlas. Uh, First Issue Special Number One was cover dated of April 1975 and released January 23rd, 1975. Big thanks to Mike's Amazing World DC Comics for that information. Our cover price is 25 cents. Our cover uh, depicts Atlas amongst a pile of men in the gladiatorial pits as he grabs one guy by the collar and presses another guy above his head, and there's just a pile of uh, prone bodies at his feet with uh, other men armed with uh, axes and swords charge in at him while the, uh, I'm guessing, the nobility looks on in the background. And uh, you can tell right away this is a Jack Kirby book, or at least a Jack Kirby cover straight on here. And... Um, it has a little indicia. It says first DC issue, which is odd because this is the first appearance of the character, so it's first Atlas issue anywhere. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, the writer, penciler, editor is Jack King Kirby. The inker and letterer is D. Bruce Berry. And uh, there were giants in those days, and the mightiest of them all was Atlas the Great, which is the title of our story. In the city of Hissa, the place of the winged lizard, the mighty Atlas, performs feats of strength while his companion Chagra talks him up like a carnival barker. Asking if any in the crowd will challenge him, a beefy local named Cargan calls Atlas a fraud and steps up, and then is promptly smashed through the dais by a single blow from Atlas. Chagra collects tokens of fiscal appreciation from the other onlookers, but Cargan's friends cry foul. But before a skirmish can break out, the retinue of a noble demands that the rabble move out of the way of his slave-pulled chariot. Atlas is unimpressed by the guards and presses him through a wall that smashes the nobleman's chariot. He grabs the noble and, against the protestations of Chagra, drags the duded-out dandy through the streets, using him as a human shield when the king's guards pour out to try and stop it. The voice of the city's ruler then echoes through the courtyard, and Atlas's thoughts become mazed as he hears the voice which he has hunted for years on end. Atlas remembers the crucial moment when, as a boy, his village is overrun by slavers. Young Atlas watches as his father stands his ground and ultimately falls before the raiders. 
He rushes out of his hiding spot and attacks the lead slaver, a man wearing an ornate lizard-crested helmet, with a face to match. But as the slaver taunts Atlas, the young boy flattens him with one punch. He runs into the tall grass and hides, but is met by Chagra, who pleads with the boy to be quiet lest they give away their location. Atlas shoulder throws Chagra into a lake and heads back to the village. Going into his home, Atlas locates a giant shimmering crystal. Chagra recognizes it immediately as part of the Crystal Mountain, and knows that the leader of the people of the mountain must possess a piece of said mountain. Chagra pledges loyalty to the boy, and they set off on the road in the days of high adventure. Atlas performs many heroic deeds, saving a village from a rampaging beast, holding up bridges with his shoulders, and toppling idols in a land of devil-worshipping cults. He lays waste to all comers in the gladiatorial pits and earns his golden helmet of champions. The road of adventure stretches ever onward until Chagra decides one day to tell Atlas where he can find the slaver who decimated his village and killed his family in exchange for taking him to the Crystal Mountain. The pair travel on, riding through the forbidden region of fire, through the dismal gloom of a mysterious cave filled with the sounds of creatures that should not exist. Then suddenly Atlas is drawn back to the present by the voice which has haunted his dreams for years. The king, Hissa, stands before Atlas and demands to know who dares to mistreat one of his noblemen. Hissa booms, speak, who are you? Atlas's reply is simple, your conqueror. And thus a great saga begins. I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, is, is this ever a Kirby, Kirby comic? Oh my god, yes. You think it's it was done by Jack Kirby? I'm suspicious of the art the artwork <laughs> has some of the earmarks. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that it says his name in giant letters on the first page. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the I pick I picked this one. I found this one. I have two local used bookstores uh, here in the upstate of South Carolina. I found this at our local Second and Charles. And Second and Charles, for those who don't know, is uh, Books a Million has converted some of their retail locations into second and charles so it's like a lot it's like think of a, a used bookstore but the size of a books a million wow and um uh so i found this here but i have been introduced to the uh, atlas character during uh, james robinson's run on superman after um which was before it was back um you know before flashpoint and he brought atlas back as a, a rival to Superman because his powers were based in magic. He could go toe-to-toe with Superman. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let me ask a quick question. Uh, in Grant Morrison's... Uh, oh, what was it? In Grant Morrison's All-Star, All-Star Superman? Superman, was Atlas one of the characters that Superman bested during that? I, it, I think or is there that, is... Or is that there some is, other character? There is an Atlas, but I don't think it's supposed to be this Atlas. Okay. I think I, that's I, supposed to be the Atlas of myth. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. But the Atlas that's in that, in fact, in, in the story is called The Coming of Atlas. There's a flashback where it's then drawn in Jack Kirby style. Nice. It's actually pretty neat. And then the trade paperback of that, also called The Coming of Atlas, collects this issue in it. But when I, I found this, at, like I said, at Second and Charles for a buck, I couldn't pass it up. I, um, the thing that was the oddest thing to me, reading it this time to try and, uh, you know, take some notes and summarize it, was this was 1975, but think about the similarities between this story and Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the seven movie years. version of Conan. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but Conan the Barbarian was seven years after this, the film. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, but the, you know, he's a boy whose village is raided by slavers and he confronts the head of the group and then he goes off and has, uh, you know, the road of high adventure, like I said, and then he, he uh, fights the gladiatorial pits and then runs into the guy again, you know, it's like, okay, so this, maybe somebody read this, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say, this, this, when I, when I was reading through this, a lot of my notes were basically, this is essentially just the Conan the Barbarian movie done by Jack Kirby. And, and I love it. I mean, it's it, it's got all the trappings of Kirby. It's got, I'm looking at that two-page splash here. Uh, the, the background of the city of Hissa is just like a giant stone Kirby machine. It's, it's glorious to look at. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the art in this is very much Kirby's DC seventies style, you know, with the, with the, uh, everybody just looks like almost deformed in the face. Mm-hmm. A little yes. bit. Cause everything is just so stylized, you know? And the, uh, I, yeah, I do have like Polynesian carvings. Yeah. But... Everybody looks like they're carved out of stone. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, the, the one I like is um, is page five, which is uh, it says Atlas, the untamed in large letters. And it's chapter two. And it's where Atlas has grabbed Cargan's uh, yes. wrist with his left hand. And he just hammer fists him through the through the floor of the dais. Well, I the, mean, that uh, is crazy. The type for Atlas, the untamed, too, is great. I guess you call it a font. Yeah. But it reminds me of horror comics, which is funny because we got three quarters of the horror vault here and none of us did a horror comic. <laughs> yeah, that is kind should of have, fun. Yeah. We should have all done the vault takes over back to the bins. But uh, but that but that page just with between the sound effects, that is that is just fantastic. Crash. Oh, and and I mean, you know, I, mean, I I like strong guy characters and I like barbarian characters. You know, uh, I I, re- I this would have fit in this fits in perfectly you know during the early days of the dc explosion dc put out a bunch of you know sword and sorcery slash barbarian books to try and compete with uh conan the barbarian over at marvel you know they did uh, beowulf which is one of the greatest comics of all time uh you know claw the unconquered stalker which was done by steve ditko of all people tour by joe kubert this would have fit in perfectly with that stable of characters mm-hmm. You know, because that, that's about when that's when Warlord got started the first time also. But we never got more than just this first issue of Atlas, unfortunately. OK, so this this didn't go. This was just a one one shot thing that, you know, to basically put it out there to see, you know, what, you know, what people thought about it. And you didn't get a second issue of this, did you? No, first issue special was kind of like showcase. OK, Uh the idea was Dick Giordano. Apparently Dick Giordano came up with the idea since first issues sell better. Let's make a series that's all first issues. Makes sense. And uh, I said I, I had never. I said I, I had never heard of Atlas until I saw him in in the modern context. And then I went back. It's like, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> the uh, the other thing I thought was interesting was using the uh, they they talk about you know all the adventures he's had in the past. And I wonder, you know, is 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 this either Kirby setting up stories to be used for future issues? Because mm-hmm. all I could think with that is when when Kirby came back to do Captain America in Tales of Suspense, a lot of times he would alternate between doing stories in the modern day and then stories set in World War II. Mm-hmm. So they were the stories of legend, you know. Here and we get like they talk. They I mean he specifically says at one point when he's smashing the the cults of the worship uh, the the false idols and stuff. He names the the town and everything. It's like there's there's got to be a story there, you know. 
Well, and Kirby was, you know, uh, was one of these great storytellers as well that you could have you could have imagined that he had some grand scheme if this had gone to if this had gone to fruition and this had actually become a series. So it's 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 a lot of neat setup in here. He's a legendary character. He's got to have legendary adventures. Mm -hmm. Right. Could just plumb forever, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I like about this is it's in that. It, this time period, I guess this wasn't really like Jack Kirby on the way down, really. But it was like he was I like as a kid, I didn't really like Jack Kirby's art because of his face and the lack of details. But I would have enjoyed this because it's got that super fussy detail to it. It's just every page is completely busy with action. And sometimes it takes your eyes a little while to figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. but it's just so greatly you know organized and presented on on the page yeah kirby always sorry go ahead i'm just saying it's it's a riot to to read you know it's you have to actively really like pay attention to it you know it has there's aspects of it that almost look like um Prince Valiant or Classics Illustrated comics where you'll have like a, a you know just somebody standing and addressing a crowd or or something but it's in that Jack Kirby style but from a distance but then you'll have like you said you know a shot of the the building that looks like a giant Kirby machine in the background and I love how his character is just prone to violence just like oh oh yeah i don't like these people oh rich guy in the back of slaves i don't like you either i'm just gonna overturn your (laughs) yeah your carriage and and carry you through through the the marketplace because you know why who's gonna stop me (laughs) well prone to violence but not uh you know he doesn't have a desire to kill you get the, the scene where he's fighting against the the giant dog and you know his uh charge is saying kill it kill it and uh, he says, "No, Targa. The young beast is far from his can, and he lets it go away. So he's not only uh, he's not only a, a warrior and a, a powerful warrior, but he's very compassionate as well. He's, he's a Renaissance man, exactly. Yeah. And and kind which of like is, thing. actually, he looks kind of like Jim Morrison once he grows up. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, a little bit like Jim Morrison. He's going to enter the palace of knowledge, you know. But uh, the funny thing is, what uh, what Robinson would eventually do with Atlas is that." You know, he would he became this great hero of legend, but then eventually there came a time when there were no more quests to go on, and he started becoming the kind of you know, you know, petty almost uh, you know, just violence for the sake of violence type of uh, guy who'd gone to you know he he was, there was nothing left for him to accomplish, and so that's why eventually in the modern context in the the pre uh, Flashpoint context he became a villain. It was just so he could have someone to fight. And so he worked for he worked for this. This is all part of uh, the new Krypton storyline. He worked for General Lane as one of Lane, one of Lane's basically uh, powerhouses, just so he could fight Superman. Hmm. To have you know, it was, it, and so he was still this. He was still this this you know legendary figure, but there was no the the time of legend had passed, kind of thing, you know. And I guess in this uh, pre Flashpoint era, was he considered to be immortal to some extent? Yeah. Or did he have him? Okay. Because, he was, you know, essentially he had a, that that crystal of power from okay. the crystal. He had a eventually he had wore it around himself so long it became part of him, 
And so now he was, you know, powered by that and super strong and essentially immortal. And again, because it was mystical in origins, he could, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like Superman fighting, I don't know, like Dr. Fate, where Dr. Fate can cast a spell on him and he's out. Mm-hmm. But he could go toe-to-toe with him and Superman would slowly get weaker because he was a magical uh, being. Okay. And so they, they essentially their story is just of having a gigantic brawl through Metropolis. It's actually it's actually really neat from a uh, you know in the context of the modern uh, or you know pre uh, or I should say post crisis pre Flashpoint Superman, but I I I really enjoyed this. I was so when I saw it, I was like, well, I gotta buy this because I had read it in the trade and I just wanted to have it, and uh, I really enjoyed. This. I wish there had been more of this. I, I just noticed this flipping through my copy here. I had said that this would have fit in with the other DC Barbarian books of the seventies. On the the ad opposite of page nineteen, we get a full the full page ad for Joe Kubert's tour. You know, it's, it's uh, which is his caveman character. It says from the world of one million years ago, and it shows Tor with his stone axe battling against the horde of the the I think I forget what they're they're like they're like they're apes that walk upright. I forget what their names are, uh, but I just thought that was funny. I made that comment, didn't even realize there was a Tor ad in the book. <laughs> So, um, any, anybody else have any, any other comments or anything on Atlas? You know, I, I like the fact that, now I'm not certain if this is pre-MODOK or post-MODOK, but the, uh, the guy that Atlas is taking down, the, the, the one who's the main bad guy on that, uh, beginning page, page 12, from the beginning of chapter three, that's a MODOK face right there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, you put, you put arms coming out the side of his head and he's, yeah. Take him out. Yep. Just with a more ornate, you know, helmet, I guess. Well, I like that that Kirby makes some hay out of that because he talks about that Hissa wears the helmet with the ornate lizard head on it, and that it has a face to match. So in a book where everyone looks kind of strange, Hissa looks really, really ugly, and he, he stands out. Mm-hmm. You know, even amongst all the other ugly faces in here, like Cargan and the people in the crowd and stuff. You know, this is this is one ugly dude, and Kirby does a good job of depicting. You know, he calls him a humanoid lizard. You know, mm-hmm. he's got that kind of the the the, the beady eyes, the, the 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 you know the mouth that looks kind of elongated, the squat face. He looks rep- reptilian, but that was, I thought that was a neat. And you're right, though, it does look like Modok. Yeah, <laughs> I guess if Modok was in a Conan book instead of in Iron Man, he's <laughs> half half rep. Well, you know, I mean, a snake's not. Not a a reptile, but a snake is a reptile. Yeah, a is it a reptile? reptile? Yeah. Or it's not an lizard. amphibian. It's not half lizard. Yeah, a snake no. is a lizard. Yeah. But it's it's very Thusala Doom. But I like in this that the little kid just punches him out <laughs> with one punch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'll be a good yeah. slave. No, there's no scene of him turning the wheel in this one. He just like, all right, pong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I loved it. Yeah. So. um I'll start with the letter grades. The cover, I gave an A. Um, I said, Kirby always did great covers, and this one's no exception. I mean, uh, if I'd seen this on, I mean, if I was a kid in 1975 and saw this, I'd, ha- I'd be totally interested in buying it. I love, I even love the logo for Atlas. It's kind of somewhat simple as it is, but it really conveys, you know, the, the tie, you know, the, the hero of legend type thing. Um, the interior art, I'm giving a B plus to. The only reason this doesn't get an A is every now and again you get a panel that looks a little cramped, almost as if Kirby kind of ran out of space. 
the one that really kind of stood out to me is the last, the second to last panel of the book where, where Atlas yells, you're conqueror, where it looks kind of stiff. It's almost as if that was supposed to be a two pay, like a, like a double size panel. And he kind of had to squeeze it down into one panel to fit the little blurb at the end of, if you'd like to hear more about Atlas, write to this address. But that's the only reason. Otherwise, I think this art is amazing. I think the inking looks great, nice and heavy, which suits the story. So uh, D. Bruce Barry did a good job on the inking and the lettering. Also, I love the lettering where everywhere people are shouting in big letters. A yes, but that was nice. The colors, I thought, looked great. They said just a panel here and there. And from a story, uh, I kind of waffled between like a B minus and a C plus because I really like the story. But the way that the flashback works, again, it's almost as if there's supposed to be an extra page in there before where they arrive in town after they ride through the can- the, the cavern. It's supposed to be like maybe a couple more panels of them arriving in the town of Hissa before <laughs> before they come back from the flashback. But uh, overall, I have to give it a B plus, and I understand that's not an average of the grades I gave it because this is one of those times where I think the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that everything really just comes together for this book. And it, and as I said, I've read it a couple of times since so I picked it up. And I'll probably end up reading it again after we're done. I've just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, my my, I, you're very similar to me in the the whole and some of the parts and all that. Although, like, I'm not a big fan of the cover. I'd give the cover like a B mm-hmm. because I don't like the color on it, the coloring on it. That that it just. It, it's too few colors. It's too bright. You know, the backgrounds, it, I, it, I think it would have benefited from a darker background and better colored. Um, it, it reminds me of um, like toy packaging a little bit, although I do like the logo a lot. Um, art wise. I almost want to give it an A plus because I just love that super busy Kirby style, and you know where he does little things like sticks chapter one on the bottom of the two big columns of rock that he's about to smash and stuff like that. But but like you said, there's there's points where it sort of breaks down here and there, so probably it's just gonna sit at an A. And the story story is definitely B. B minus C area somewhere waffling between there because it's, it's a good general story, but the story is really just sort of reinforced by the artwork and, and the, the momentum of the artwork. But, um, otherwise, yeah, I would say, yeah, just in, uh, as a, the sum of the parts would probably be a B plus leaning, leaning towards a, okay. because I, and like, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the hell out of reading it. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before, so it was just out of nowhere fun. Yeah, for me, the story, it, it is remarkably similar to what we'd get, you know, here in a couple of, well, what you'd say, six years, seven years? Yeah, you know, seven with, years. With Conan. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, uh, I don't know whether it's really prescient on Kirby's part or whether they kind of homaged Kirby in doing this, but the story is good. It's the typical, you know, uh, it, it harkens back to Conan, so I can't dislike it. So I've got to give the story an A. You know, that's just a heck of a lot of fun. Kirby's artwork, I know a lot of people are hit and miss on it. I think this is a really good example of Kirby's art. Um, I'll probably give the art an A-. Uh, 
there are a few things in here that are a bit wonky. Some of the eyes look a bit off. Uh, it's not it's not bad, but it's it's good good Kirby art. Uh, the cover, I will admit, yeah the the title the title thing really stands out. It's got that sort of that sort of Superman the movie vibe coming out at you with mm. the streams coming afterwards. I like that. Um, the art on the cover, however, looks a bit stiff. Atlas doesn't look as as huge as he does in in the uh, issue to me, and he looks a bit. Like I said, he looks a bit more stiff. He doesn't look as fluid as he does in the rest of this. So I'd probably give the cover a B for overall, like a about an A minus for the overall comic. I, I really enjoyed it. And this is, again, something I had no idea uh, of you know what happened to it or no idea of it coming out. And I'm glad I got a chance to check it out. This is this is awesome stuff. Good Kirby. Yeah, definitely. I think you made a good point there, Sean, where you said that people can be hit or miss with Jack Kirby, especially mm-hmm. from this era. Uh, but this was a good example of it. I think in a lot of times, especially as we get into the 70s, that Kirby was much, uh, it seemed almost, not not more comfortable, but seemed to to give a better result when he was working on his own characters in his own settings. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking of books like Devil Dinosaur, which as, you know, kind of, you know, uh, as much as that series is kind of a, a silly in a lot of ways, visually, it was always incredibly dynamic because it was, he didn't have to worry about anything else. He created the world and the characters that populated it. And that's the same thing we get here with Atlas, same as we got with uh, a lot of the books in the fourth world, even though uh, there were obviously like uh, the forever people took place on Earth and they did interact with the DCU sometimes, you know, new gods interacted with the DCU sometimes. But you get those fourth world stories that take place on New Genesis or on Apocalypse. And that's where his stuff really shines from that era is because it's all his. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that unfiltered, direct Jack Kirby right on the page. And that's what we get in this book. And I think that's that's what I said. It makes it stand out that even though you can nitpick here and there and make niggling things here and there, overall, as a whole package, it's just really just a lot of fun to sit down with. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, that, good. That, leads us, that leads us to the uh, man of the hour. It's, it's up to you, Chris. Mr. Yo. Indy. Dazzle us with your indie comic. Well, this one, this one, I actually picked up at a used bookstore that I just wandered into, and decided, you know, to take a little browse around, and found this. I never, I'm a big fan of this uh, artist Chester Brown, and I'd never heard of this before. And it's a hardcover book, cover price twenty four ninety five. I got it for ten bucks. Ooh, used nice. bookstore. Yeah, by uh, printed by Drawn and Quarterly. Which is a quality indie, um, you know, one of the more mainstream indie dealers, I guess, or you know, or publishers. I would say, you know, they were they really had a big heyday in the '90s when when there was a big big market for that and a lot of people doing them. And Chester Brown was one of the the mainstays of them. He had a ongoing comic called Yummy Furries. He's from Toronto. And uh, this came out in 2011. It's really hard to give a synopsis to this, and it's 300 pages long. So I'm slightly not longer start... than normal. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> yes. going to start flipping through it to to give the storyline. Not your typical but, comic. But the comic is called "Paying for It: A Comic Strip Memoir About Being a John," 
and it's an autobiographical comic and uh right off the bat he uh dedicates it to his friend joe matt who's in the comic his friend seth who i don't know seth's last name and joe matt they're all they're three cartoonists who usually during in the comics they're all living in toronto together and they all go to you know they're best friends they go to lunch together so in all three of their comics they all do autobiographical comics you know at certain times amongst their other comics and so there's always scenes of the three of them having lunch and commenting on each other and they know each other really well and and pick on their foibles and he did dedicated this to joe matt who's really does the most autobiographical comics of his and they're all about his relationships and how painfully horribly neurotic and selfish he is and they're like these overwrought you know just they're they're great to read but boy they're full of self-loathing you know he really portrays himself as an exaggerated if it's not exaggerated boy he'd be a hard person to be around <laughs> any time but he sort but Chester Brown sort of took him as his as his inspiration for this book where you know basically he just tells a story of his life and Chester Brown's a very detached cartoonist he has he likes to work in you know just standard he'll pick a, a panel shape for whatever comic he's doing and that's it every every panel in this usually like your your average page is going to have eight rectangular panels in it you know unless there's a chapter change or something like that or it's the end of a chapter and there's only three on that page or whatever but it's laid out exactly the same it's told very dryly and basically the story is he's been dating this woman for a long time and they're living together and they're having uh basically no no sex relationship they still get along but they're just sort of like roommates and uh she starts asking you know maybe i want to start seeing other people and he says yeah okay i don't see why not you know if that's what you want to do so eventually she starts dating a musician and you know there's even and he starts coming over and and there's you know even talk of him moving in and um you know chester's being berated by his friends sort of and picked on a little bit for you know living in that situation and and he claims he's not jealous he's sort of over the whole concept of romantic love he doesn't believe that it's a, a good or useful thing or or all this and you know they're saying you're just saying that because you're trying to justify your situation and eventually and this so they said well you know she's seen other people what's you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander right and he's you know if if you've read any of his other autobiographical comics he's an introverted you know toronto indie comic artist he's not a very outgoing person social person so he's like uh, you know I'm not the kind of guy who's just gonna go out and pick up a girl or or just find some sex and he's like I'm too you know definitely too shy and wary to ever you know deal with prostitutes or anything but tick tock tick tock time starts passing <laughs> and uh, he starts hearing about he, he starts reading a website uh, or an article or something, a story about, you know, an author's talking about how he's visited, you know, um, um, escorts. 
and the the all the you know how to go about getting an escort and the and how to you know the do's and don'ts and etiquette of that and he decides to actually that's you know he's got a uh a decent income so he's going to try it out so then basically the whole book is his his experiences with that uh, at first discovering how to actually go about it and at first he can't um a lot of it has to do with whoa do you hear that we got a harley going by on uh, on my street the little backfire but uh at first it's you know you have to get a little up on the toronto laws at the time where it was illegal for the prostitutes to have a place where you could go visit but it wasn't illegal for them to come to your house but at the same time he was living with his girlfriend quote-unquote girlfriend and she was you know while he would talk about the fact that he was seeing prostitutes she was not into the idea of him bringing them back to the house so that he had to he had to go to the out calls and so you get to see how he learns how the whole that whole process of looking them up in the paper and then he would have to call from phone booths and and stuff like that and he soon found out that it sort of suited his that that he was enjoying it and then of course his girlfriend ended up having her boyfriend move in and uh, after a while it was probably a good idea that he should move out so once he got his own place he could start having them come to his house and then the second half of the book concerns various prostitutes that you know some that didn't work out some that are semi-horror stories as I said it's all in a very detached style so some things that could have been really awful are sort of downplayed and some things that could have been like sort of touching scenes have are out of place and he also took out he mentions in the beginning that he took out anything that would identify any of these people as real as you know as real people and he took out a lot of things conversations they had that were just real just human to human conversations so it has a very dry feel to it but um by the end of the the book after a few years i i think he's six years maybe he'd settled into basically a six-year quote-unquote monogamous relationship with one prostitute where she's the only one that he visits uh for the last six years and they sort of you know what whatever you call it but he's sort of has a girlfriend without the relationship aspects of it Mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of text at the end of it where he you know talks about prostitution laws he's become an advocate for legalizing or decriminalizing prostitution over legalizing it for various reasons that's not you know but um it's a very Chester Brown comic, and and um, I'm a big fan. There's only one comic that he ever made that I never really uh, warmed up to, and that was Louis Louis Riel, who is a uh, you know one of the founders of Canada, and it was a historic, very dry historical, very wordy, lots of text. You know the biography of Louis Riel. And I bought all the issues of it, but I've never made it through 
everything else that, that he's ever written has been like I just whip right I, I, I read this book at one on, in one sitting it's 300 pages but it's not a lot of dialogue no and yeah, there's there's a lot of scenes where it's just you know a lot of the chapters are just you know encounters with some of the the, the working girls or prostitutes or whatever you want to call them and it's you know his experience with them whether it be negative or positive and all that uh, most of the most of the dialogue is at the end of the book where he's laying out his idea of why this should be decriminalized which is which is an interesting idea in itself yeah, yeah. and and the thing is is uh, I, I had not read any of Brown's work before folks may know them from my well, you probably don't know this it's been so long unfortunately Chris since you got a comic book underbelly show out You're the second person in the last week who's brought that up <laughs> it's, a rise, it's the rising tide and and the, the the font on the cover of this book is it's it's Chester Brown's handwriting but it's the same font that we use for the, the funny book <laughs> funny book underbelly yeah well, well John Bueno just moved back to Rochester. Hey. What could happen? But uh, but I'm not a huge indie guy, but as the cliche goes, I know what I like. You know? And and I do really I enjoy a lot of these autobiographical style comics. I love American Splendor. I love uh, Jim Valentino's autobiographical stuff. Uh, you know, um Dirty laundry comics, all that kind of stuff. But so, that, but this was a new one to me. But this one was interesting in that it was autobiographical, but it was only only about his life in relation to his decision to, you know, leave romantic love aside and only get sex through working with escorts. And so it was very focused on that. And you know, the the thing is that a lot of times in indie books, the art is it'll either get you or it'll, or you'll be disinterested. Right. And the art here, it being so clean and simple, kind of drew me in a little bit because everyone looks, you said it's very detached and impersonal in a lot of ways. You know, he obscures the face of all the escorts behind their word balloons or only shows them from the rear and shows all of them as brunettes with essentially the same build. Same talks, build, same height, yeah. Yeah, he well, talks about in the, in the notes that that was done on purpose again to... A, to, to remove any possible way of identifying any of these people. You know, he wears his glasses throughout the entire book. You never get to see his eyes or really get a sense of emotion. The only one that really stands out is when he's having his argument with his friend about legalization versus decriminalization, and you see that the storm clouds building in his thought yeah. balloon. And I thought that was a really nice touch, but again, his face remains impassive. It's just in his mind a little yes. bit. That's, it's only that one scene, really. So this is is this very kind of cut and dried in a lot of ways about, you know, that it's 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 almost as if I'm gonna I'm gonna write a report about this and it just happens to be a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say in in the art is the very simple, very clean, very stylized art, but there is uh, enough distinction in some of the things that you can tell differences between the girls. It's not radically different. I mean, yes, the body's types are pretty similar but there's a way you know going from especially in the quick succession of uh him going to different escorts you can see slight differences between them so that you get the idea that even though that these girls are similar there's a difference in the body type maybe the hips will be a little bit wider 
or they'll be a little bit rounder or they had one girl who uh, was kind of uncomfortable with, with her with her breast size and her uh, breasts weren't as large as the other girls. So there's these little, these little things in here that distinguish each individual character from each other. But yeah, it is pretty pretty simplistic style, but the style is so clean it, it does it doesn't dissuade you from wanting to look at the book. Yeah, and often like the, a lot of the differences of the girls, it's just in his description of them. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll, he'll he'll describe them as well. There's one where he gets sort of like uh, preoccupied with a mole that has hairs growing out of it, and he runs into all different. He runs into like girls who are immigrant Russian immigrants who don't really speak English. You know, that might be in a sort of questionable situation. You know, but he doesn't play it. You know, it doesn't really go anywhere from there. You know, mm-hmm. it's just sort of his experience with it, and it's it's kind of an amusing experience because he goes there once and meets one girl, who sort of like you know focuses in and like you come back to me and whatever, and it isn't until his second bi- visit that he realizes she doesn't speak any English at all. Well, she actually <laughs> says, "I don't speak any English." You know, yeah, and. At, the other thing, though, like, and you, and building off what you said, Chris, it's interesting too that you know he even in the 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 text piece and the notes and everything in the back, he he makes a point of keeping it specifically to his experience because you know he introduces the topic in the notes of human trafficking, but then very quickly dismisses it because that's always one of the counter arguments to even decriminalization of prostitution is that you know the prostitution. I'll put this in air quotes up to the mic. Business is still wrought with, you know, the, the perils of human trafficking from other mm-hmm. countries. And so in a sense, he becomes an, like I said, an advocate for decriminalization, but by the same time, he's not in this work anyway, seriously discussing the, 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 the actual, uh, you know, negative side of that argument. He dismisses a lot of his friends, uh, comments during their argument that they have as, oh, that's just what people say. But then at the same right. time, he doesn't, it, it, he specifically doesn't address the hard questions in the room, you know? Well, and, and it keeps it right on that. Like I said, it's his experience. It's a chronicle of his experience and nothing really beyond that. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that, that's kind of the way out. It's kind of the way that he can you right. know, dodge the bullet of, you know, these, these horrible things that probably are going on by saying that that's nothing that I experienced, so I can't talk to whether or not this is an actual thing. I mean, well, he does throw out some statistics near the end of the book, but you know, uh, the the point of view is from what he's gone on to see with his experience with these many escorts. Well, from what I've seen of his work and Joe Matt's work is, they're just honest to a fault, painfully honest with it. So... A lot of this comes off, and I thought maybe I was reading into it or psychoanalyzing it, but I think he, I think he purposely, when in writing it, I'm sure he considered that you know the, the this whole book might be just his long, you know, way of making reconciling it with himself, his guilt feelings about it himself by saying, ah, romantic love doesn't exist, you know, people aren't meant to. To, you know, some people are meant to, you know, pair up and and whatever. And, you know, it's all just sort of there to justify what he's doing to himself. And, you know, by the end of it, 
he's he's settled into one girl you know he's sort of made instead of being like i'm you know he's he's sort of made a little compromise there where he's almost got a girlfriend you know he he really likes this girl and they have a good rapport with each other and he goes over you know however many times a week or a month and and pays her two hundred dollars to have sex with her or whatever and you know they're having you know and he describes it as you know somebody i get along with that i'm monetarily compensating you know yeah and mm-hmm. and all of that so he's sort of halfway there you know but it by the same token though it's almost as if saying you're having a a committed monogamous relationship with your barber or your mechanic right you know, because exactly. the relationship <laughs> is still based on providing a service in exchange for money mm-hmm. you know he places a use value on sex of being the money he's willing to spend rather than the uh the opportunity cost of having a a girlfriend and dealing with the romantic side of it and the arguments and everything else and you don't find out if you know you don't it's not really clear whether you know like his ex-girlfriend when they were even still boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever and they would be discussing things you know they would go out to lunch and just have lunch and talk about life and stuff and you don't really know if he does that with with the you know the escort. He, you, you don't know whether you know maybe they they do really get along and they go and hang out as friends and talk as friends and whenever he gets two hundred dollars together they have yeah. sex you know and uh, which is funny because it probably profits to this book. <laughs> yeah, we might know where directly went. to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting but, also is that. Uh, Another indie creator that I'm a big fan of is Dave Sim. And mm-hmm. Sim was, you know, I think the final nail in the coffin for his <laughs> career with most most women readers yeah. was his, his essay Tangent, which was his five-part essay on uh, gender roles and gender relations, which is, you know, where the term uh, roll, one eyes, roll her eyes theatrically and sigh uh, dramatically comes from. That's why I say that all the time. Um, and in, in, the early, in the early portions of tangent sim talks about you know uh, that, that women and w- monogamy doesn't make sense and being in a romantic relationship is ultimately toxic and a lot of the same stuff that brown talks about here and that but of course sim takes it one step further uh even saying that uh, that the key to it is to avoid uh to practice celibacy and avoid masturbation in fact that's i think a direct quote oh. but hmm. uh again sim sim's a whole other kind that. of thing so uh <laughs> But so, but here it's it's again it's it's interesting that these two guys who are both Canadian cartoonists come to this kind of uh, understanding of the you know, of their own feelings towards romantic love. And it as a reader to me, it questions: Does it come from you know rejection? Does it come from you know being the uh, as you said a kind of uh, introverted person who's not confrontational? But if you're in a relationship, you have to deal. You have to confront with those emotions. He's definitely you know? a detached person by the descriptions yeah. of his friends and stuff. So it, it it was really interesting to read this for me, not just for the uh, you know again the the aspect of deciding that you're only going to pay for sex for the rest of your life, but it's the decisions that lead to that and the responses to that. And towards the middle of the book, he starts getting you know really kind of almost clinically professional about it. He talks about yes. that that one girl that. Uh, you know, she was being really, really aggressive with the oral because she didn't want me to have sex with her. I'll have to give her a bad review on Turb. 
you yeah. know. He gets kind of obsessed with the the website that rates where you put up ratings for the prostitutes and and stuff on it or escorts. He has one where he he refers to her, the girl as a prostitute and she flips out. I'm an escort. Mm-hmm. Well, it's and it's different. It's he he's not afraid to he's not afraid to speak his mind. He's not afraid to you know be not politically incorrect, but you know call it as it is. And unfortunately, you know. A lot of the girls seem to have a stigma about it, you know. Despite the fact that they're openly going out and doing it, there's mm-hmm. there there's a stigma with being called a prostitute. I know that uh, I've uh, I was able to watch some of that show Cat House, which is about the uh, bunny ranch out in uh, mm-hmm. Nevada, and a lot of the girls like to be called working girls and all that. There's there's a certain kind of way they want to approach it, even though they are selling their body. For sex legally in Nevada, there's there's still a stigma to it, and he even addresses it uh, later well, on in the in the back matter of the book that uh, the whole thing going on in Nevada he doesn't look at as a good thing because that's they not how he lo- yeah because at the bunny ranch supposedly you know they have to buy their own uh, protection their own condoms and their own lube or whatever from the bunny ranch they get their stuff. If they bring their stuff in, it gets confiscated. So right. it becomes a company store type of deal. Mm-hmm. So that you know the company is basically making more money than the girls are. So it, it's a it's a really interesting read, and it it's very thought provoking. It's it's you know we had two comics that were just basically smashing up comics, and you brought the stuff that actually made us you know had to turn our brains on and think for a while. Right. <laughs> Although it's, I do have to say, not to interrupt you, Chris, had Jack Kirby drawn this comic, though? <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, I would yeah. have loved to see Jack Kirby's. It would have been know. more erotic, for sure. This is not an erotic comic. There's it a lot of sex in it. This, the, you're nobody. If, if you're beaten off to this comic, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, there would have been a lot, more, a lot more exclamation points also. And very dramatic panel layouts of guys dialing phones and knocking on doors. What I I like about this style of documentary, comic book, autobiographical stuff is when, you know, usually if somebody's sort of, it's not, this comic isn't setting out to make the case that prostitution should be legal. It's sort of making the case that that's what his conclusion, that's what he came to as a conclusion. But a lot of people, when they're trying to make a case, they'll candy coat everything and they'll, you know, they'll portray, you know, every hooker is doing it, you know, of their own will and happily and, you know, healthily and all that. And they'll portray and he does not do that. He, he seems if he saw something that was a little sketchy or, you know, picked up on something that they said, he, he puts it in here. So it doesn't it doesn't just have a one-sided view to it. It shows the good and the bad and it almost sort of I you almost get the feeling that he clipped off some of the the better stuff, the the, the more positive stuff and he clipped off some of the more negative stuff and tried to keep it right in the middle, you know. Mm-hmm. I also like that there is there is some bits of humor in there. Just kind of bizarre humor from the situation he goes to see the one girl and she's watching her soap opera and then she's giving him oral and watching her soap opera and then she's 
sitting on top of him and watching her soap opera. Watching her soap opera. There's a sort of running theme of soap operas, <laughs> that being the only thing they have to sort of entertain themselves during the day between John. So, yeah, she got a little too too uh, focused. <laughs> I just, I just thought that was funny. He's like, is she gonna stop watching? <laughs> it just cracked me up. Oh, and he's doing stuff like he's masturbating before he goes to see the hookers so he can have sex longer. Be- and, you know, because he's thinking of it as having, you know, he's thinking of it as a two-way street sort of thing. And after a while, like, there's one point where the girl's like, "Come on, already!" Yeah. frustrated with him and ends up in the bathroom like storming into the bathroom just to get away from the situation for a minute and so he does portray those uncomfortable situations where he's and he looks like the kind of creepy lonely guy that would go (laughs) see hookers in a you know judgmental way you know he's he doesn't portray himself as he portrays himself as sort of appearing on the surface of being the stereotypical John of sort of like l- lonely and alien, socially alienated, yeah. mm-hmm. maladjusted. Uh, the other, uh, the other one I thought was was funny is when he's talking to the one girl about her reviews on the website, and he said, "Oh, the reviews are positive, except one guy who said you had kind of a grungy washroom." And she goes, "I know that was a problem, but we got it cleaned." And he goes, he goes, yeah, this is a clean washroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she, tra- she drags him right over and goes, look, look at this. It's, nice. all, it's, it's all so matter of fact, you know. It, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. They could be talking about a hotel or a bed and breakfast. It's, and it's, not it's, a... the, it's the Angie's list of call girls. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, well, uh, what do we what do we have to think about this grade wise? What do you what do you I'll go ahead and go first on this. Um, For artwork, you know, it's kind of hard. It, the art is clean. It it does the job. Uh, so I just have to give it a B. There's nothing fantastic. I would have loved to see Jack Kirby draw this. That would have been amazing. Uh, it would have <laughs> gone up a whole letter grade. Uh, story-wise... Carmine it, Infantino. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. There would have been boobs aplenty. Everyone we all know about it. Italy, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for story-wise... You know, I thought it was an engaging story. It's it's a story that makes you think. Yeah, yeah, three hundred pages. Well, the comic itself is probably about a hundred and seventy-five pages, but it moves by quickly. It's a quick read. Uh, so I'd give the story an A. Uh, the cover, it's a standard cover. I'd give it a B. So uh, probably a grade overall of about a B plus. And uh, see what I. The cover I, I was just a, kind of a typical kind of indie cover. I, I went with a, a B yeah. on that. For me, the the story I gave it a B, and the reason why I did that is that I thought it was the story itself was really interesting, and it raises a lot of questions and it makes you think. But it does, in one sense, fall into the sort of trap of a lot of these autobiographical comics where it starts to get a little repetitive, and it's you know it, every chapter. Not not every chapter, but a lot of chapters are, are somewhat similar in that, oh, I'd like to meet this girl, okay, come to the location, do this, and then he meets up with the girl, and then it's a comment after that. And so it's, again, understanding, it's a chronicle of where he went, but it does start to feel a little samey in spots when, you know, there, there's a couple of chapters in a row around the early, like the late teens, early 20s, where there's like three or four chapters in a row like that. So that, I mean, as I said, I enjoyed it, it really made me think, but it almost felt like it could have used another another round of editing a little bit just to tighten up some of it 
the artwork. I thought it was interesting that on, on the copy that you uh, you provided for us, Chris, R. Crumb did the uh, the foreword. Mm-hmm. And just thinking to myself, how different would this book be if R. Crumb did the art on it? It would, you know. Oh my God! I mean, mm-hmm. considering the again, we talked about the detached, depersonal nature of it. You know, uh, we don't see a lot of emotion. Yeah, with with Crumb, it would almost be like a like a caricature almost with Crumb doing this kind. It would of, be porn. Oh my gosh, it would be something. Uh, but uh, but with with Brown doing it, I I liked the art. Again, it was it was clean, simplistic, um, but it, but it wasn't at the but it wasn't the kind of stuff where you know like Crumb where you might take a pa- like a page of Crumb artwork and just look at it and go, man, that's fantastic. Wow. That's something I'd like yeah. on my wall. You know that this was. The art was there because he's a cartoonist and it serves the story. Mm-hmm. And if you and and we probably the three of us, I mean, uh, I'm assuming would not sit down and necessarily re- read a novel of this or a non- nonfiction book of this, but as a comic, we'll read it. So that to me, the, so I gave the art a B, and overall, I, I gave the book a B. I thought it was thought provoking. Again, not the type of stuff that we normally talk about here on Back to the Bins, but I try to keep open to some indie books now and again, so I was glad to see this one come through and get a chance to take a look at an indie creator that I hadn't looked at before. You see, I'm giving the, the art and the story an A-plus because I'm just a huge Chester Chester Brown fan, and it's, it's you know, vintage. It's just pure top of his form. That That's his form, and he's sort of, to me, he reminds me a lot of Stanley Kubrick. In his slow, detached style, where he'll he will repeat things to just sort of give subtle variations on it, rather than. So I enjoyed the the re- repetition aspect of it and the the sort of slowness of it, but it it gets knocked down to an A by the cover, which definitely gets a C because it's a boring cover. It. I don't think it really the the layout of it of having the you know the the page layout on it. I think it's actually funny when you take the dust cover off. There's just a little square panel with one panel of him you know uh, kissing a naked hooker and with the thought balloon saying a comic strip memoir about being a John, and that's mm-hmm. a much better cover than than the dust cover general cover for it and i also don't like the fact that the publisher really pressured him into calling the book paying for it and i can't believe that he gave into that because he his the reason he didn't want to use that title and his reason i thought was very good where was that the title sort of intimates it has a double meaning it has he's paying money for it but that he's also paying for it you know that he's suffering for it Mm-hmm. That's definitely not a theme of the story, not what he intended for it. But they thought that that would sell more books because, and it's and it's because of the things that he sort of, you know, the stigmas that he sort of um, against that they thought that it might be better to title the book that. So that's kind of weird. So C for the so the C knocks it down to just a general A. Because the cover, I don't rank it in equal importance in this case, with the uh, like with a comic book, so it just doesn't take the A pluses down that much. So, okay. so a general general A, bad cover. Yeah. Well, 
Well, cool. This was this was really fun doing this, guys. This is nice to get out and talk about you know different comics and you know you know even comics you know that happen to be about you know uh, escorts. So Lady. where where are you going to find that anywhere on the two true peaks website? Yeah, I, I was gonna I, I was gonna say we definitely earned I think the explicit tag without even really swearing. Without yeah. swearing, yeah. If we had a mature listeners tag, we could use that uh-huh. one. We become, <laughs> we we've become the we become the vertigo. Of the of the two true freaks podcast, uh, if we had a one, mature listeners tag. There would be nobody that applies. To not on yeah, not in our group. <laughs> I, I do want to. Speaking of of two true freaks network, I do just have to say this. I did a little bit of math this morning, and as of the morning that we're recording this, there are over thirteen hundred episodes across twenty nine podcasts on our network. Holy wow, that is something. Holy. And if you take Trentus Magnus out of there, there's still over 500. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, Trentus. I'm kidding. Nice. <laughs> oh. But yeah, so just chew on that for a while. <laughs> 300. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a huge amount of that's a huge amount of shows, and we're still putting out stuff. You know, we've still got tons of. You we're know, not I know known you guys for our got... short shows either. No, that's true. Yeah. No, it, it's like I it's like I said back at uh, episode 200. Uh, I remember my comment vividly. I said, wow, those four hours went by like 240 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.